listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Tonight I'm going to speak on the topic, When the State Becomes God. When the State Becomes God. If you study church history, you will discover that the relationship of the church and state occupies most of the 2,000 years of church history. When the ancient Christians in Rome were supposed to swear allegiance to Caesar, and many of them didn't, and they died, the reason is because Rome believed that it was not possible to be a good citizen unless you were unified by religion. And so unifying religion, you became a good citizen because you acknowledged Caesar to be Lord. And then, of course, when the Christians took over after the time of Constantine, suddenly the church played the role of God. During the days of Martin Luther, and by the way, I've written a book on the Reformation, and I saw a few copies out there. But during the days of Martin Luther, there was no freedom of religion. When Luther stood up at the Diet of Orms and said, uh, you know, hier stehe ich, ich kann nicht anderes, thought I'd throw that out for the Germans that are here. Here I stand, I can do no other. He was supposed to be put to death. Now, he wasn't put to death for some interesting reasons, but heretics were burned. There was no freedom of religion during the Middle Ages. Europe doesn't really have freedom of religion until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. And the fact that even in Germany, under Nazi Germany, and I hate to keep promoting my stuff, but I've written a book about it, which actually won an award, Nazi Germany, Hitler's Cross. During that period of time, Hitler became God. Whatever Hitler said was the law. If he said that the Jews were untermensch, subhuman, they, then that became the law of the land. So the relationship of church and state has always been very, very interesting. Now, I must say that what we have in the United States and Canada is an anomaly. As we have the idea that it's possible for us to actually have freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and at the same time, in the United States at least, be unified by a constitution and not a religion is a very new idea. And of course, here in Canada, you have a different history, but the same thing applies, namely, that you are able to have freedom of religion at the same time that the government is able to have certain laws. The problem is that what happens is secularism and uh, judges and so forth, they begin to encroach on freedom of conscience. And that's what we see in America, and that's what we see in Canada. Now, interestingly about Islam, if I might say that, Islam is a political religion. And because of that, Islam can become God, the religion of Islam. In all the Islamic countries throughout the Middle East, what you find is Islam gobbles up freedom of conscience. Woe to those who convert to another religion. Now, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that you probably have read, and that is in Daniel chapter 3. And I invite you to take uh, time to turn to it. And I know if you're here as a millennial today, you probably don't have your Bible. 
You have your cell phone, your iPad, your jackhammer, whatever it is that you brought with you. But could you look up here for just a moment? This actually is a Bible. You see this? Do we have an amen? Amen. Amen, which we but all take it. What's happening in Daniel chapter 3 is this. Nebuchadnezzar is setting up an image, and uh, it's 90 feet high. The base of the image is actually, I think, been found by archaeologists. But he set up the religion, uh, excuse me, the image, and this thing is coming off here uh, because uh, it was not uh, properly hooked problem, properly. Young man, why don't you come up here and put this on while I'm talking here? And uh, this is all part of what we planned ahead of time. So if you can see this young man come up, I want to emphasize the young is relative. That's certainly true, and it's also interesting that you have such people in the church who are gifted technologically. I just wanted to see if you could manage the steps. <laughs> Here's what's happening. He puts up an image at the plain of Dura, and he says, everybody come. Daniel chapter 3. He says, when you have the music, and Daniel chapter 3 actually lists all of the instruments, and there are at least six or seven instruments. He says, when you hear the instruments, fall down and worship the image, and if not, you are going to be put into the fiery furnace. And there are three guys who don't bow. Now, we don't know why there weren't four. We don't know where Daniel was. But um, he would not have bowed, of course. But there were three guys known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sometimes affectionately called shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. <laughs> and these guys would not bow. Now, one of the things that we learn is this. When the state becomes God, what happens? The state issues laws. And those laws infringe on conscience. And if there is no law above the United States Supreme Court, then, of course, this court, in effect, becomes God. Show me your laws, and I will show you your God. If the Supreme Court of Canada is nothing above it except themselves, they play the role of God. And if you as an individual have your own laws and you're not under authority, then you, in effect, become your own God. And so the state became God. And then I'm going to go ahead and read, and then we're going to begin with these transforming lessons and applications to culture and what have you. Afterwards, uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls in these three guys and says, you know what? You weren't looking at your emails. You missed the memo. I asked you to bow before the image, and the report has come to me that you guys refused to bow. So just, we're going to have a redo. Let's do this again. We're going to go through the music. And if you do not bow, the furnace will be seven times hotter, which is a euphemism for saying as hot as it can possibly get, and then you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. With your Bibles open, I want you to notice how these men answered, and then we will begin on some lessons for ourselves and for our culture. I'm actually going to jump 
for the purposes of time to verse 16 of chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire and from the furnace, and he will deliver us from the burning furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, if not, let it be known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have made. We will not bow. Wow. All right, let's look at some lessons and some applications. That's where we're going tonight. Lesson number one uh, that these men teach us is it is important to have some deep convictions. There must come a time when we draw a line in the sand and to say we can do this, 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 but this we cannot do. Now if you study this passage, what you'll discover is the extent to which these young men submitted to the culture is actually quite shocking. And then in that sense, they may not even be a model for us. But there was a point at which they drew a line. I want to paint the context. Nebuchadnezzar had come down and he had taken Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon, about 10,000. And uh, the temple was destroyed, the armies of Judah were totally demolished, and his soldiers were so cruel, they took Jewish babies and threw them against the rocks. And it's, it's his armies. And, and God put these young men next to him and said, I want you to be advisors to this wicked king, and I want you to help him to be a better king, which is shocking. But sometimes we forget that in the midst of a pagan Babylonian society, it is our responsibility to even help the unsaved people do better at what they are doing. But there does come a point at which we draw a line say this is where my convictions are and by the way they had their names changed uh, they were indoctrinated in Babylonian culture for three years they had all that and they said we can put up with that we wish we knew how they stood against the culture uh, the Bible doesn't tell us all the details but they did say there is a line in the sand we will not bow at the Moody Church in Chicago, a teacher of the school system in Chicago said that he was told that it is not enough for you as a teacher to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. That's not enough. If you do not celebrate it, you could lose your job. That for him was a line in the sand. I can tolerate it in the public school, but I will not bow I will not celebrate what God has condemned. That is a line in the sand. I received an email from another teacher who said that in our school, there's a young man whom we shall call Daniel. And uh, this young man says that in school he identifies as a girl and we're supposed to call him Daniela. So in class, he's to be called Daniela, but the principal said, when the parents come for their consultation, you have to call him Daniel. Uh, you, can't, you can't tell them that 
Their son in school identifies as a girl. That's his business. So the teacher asks the question, where is the line drawn? And my dear friends today, we live in a society in America and you in Canada, this great dominion where I was born. I was born in Saskatchewan, maybe I told you that, as an American, as a Canadian citizen, now I'm an American. But the point is, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to have deep convictions and say we will not bow and pay the consequences of our decision? Or will we always bow, always submit, always compromise? So that's lesson number one. Where is the line in the sand for you? Some of you may discover that your job expects you to be dishonest. That's a line in the sand, and you say, I will not bow. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is simply this. They trusted in the promises, the promises of God. We believe, O King, that our God is able to deliver us. And we even think he will. But if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Now the question is simply this. They trusted the promises of God. What promises? Well, maybe since Isaiah had already been written, maybe it was promises in the book of Isaiah that God says, when you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. When you're thrown into the water, you will not be drowned. You remember those uh, promises? But actually, if I might give you a little lesson in hermeneutics, that's a big word for biblical interpretation. Those kinds of promises that I'm sure they knew about did not apply to specific individuals. Historically, plenty of people have been drowned for their faith. Others, of course, have been thrown into the fire, and I'll mention some of them in just a moment. But, but nonetheless, they knew that no matter how hot the fire got, they knew that God would walk with them through their experience, and they were confident that they could believe the promises of God's presence even when God didn't do necessarily what they thought he should. So they stood here with a great deal of confidence in God's promises. Namely, we're going to believe God in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our challenge. Could I say a related point is actually number three in terms of lessons to be learned, and that is they believed in the providence of God. The providence of God. And there's a young man over here who's taking notes. I'm looking at you. God bless you. In heaven, your crown will be so heavy, your head will be tilted. <laughs> they trusted in the providence of God. Notice this. We believe that our God is able to deliver us. We know that he can, and we even think he will. But if he doesn't, we will not swerve in our relationship with you. We will leave the final decision with you. Blessed are those who say, we believe, O oh God, that you are able to deliver a young mother for whom Rebecca and I are praying. I think she's 43 years old, stage four cancer. She'll be leaving several children behind unless there's a miraculous healing. We believe, O oh God, that you are able to heal this mother, but if you don't, we will continue to believe you and continue to trust your providence 
to do what is best. Let me ask you something as a mature Christian, and most of you here tonight are. Are you comfortable with the unpredictability of God's providence? It is so unpredictable. Acts chapter 12, James is killed with a sword by Herod. Well, how do you like that? James is killed with a sword, but Peter is released from prison. He's singing songs at midnight. And um, actually, in that context, he isn't. Peter actually is asleep. I forgot that. Peter is asleep. I often wondered, he knew that he believed he was going to be killed the next day with a sword, and he's sleeping. The only thing I can conclude is that he actually was very much wanting to arrive in heaven rested. <laughs> so he was sleeping. But he's delivered, and uh, James is killed. And one person is healed and the other isn't. And one person is given a long life and the other a short life. Some of you know that my parents lived long. My father died at 106, my mother at 103. My parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. <laughs> We're the losers. But the losers made it. I believe that much of my ministry today is still the result of my parents' prayers. But the point to be made is that they thought God forgot their address. By the way, the last 15, 20 years of their life, they had no peer pressure, I can assure you. <laughs> but young people die. But it seemed as if they couldn't. I mean, I'm getting old. I mean, let's say, let's just simply face it, that when I was born, the Dead Sea was only sick. <laughs> and the older I get, the more mysterious God's ways are. Blessed are those who don't try to read his providences through an envelope, like you might try to read a letter through an envelope. Blessed are those who trust his providence, who say, God, we want you to do this and that, and we believe that you can, and we even believe that you will, but if you don't, we're going to begin, we're going to continue to trust you. And these men, I think that that's one of the greatest expressions of faith in all the Bible. We believe you can, we believe God will, but if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. And then, of course, there's a fourth lesson, and that is they chose to stand alone. Well, wait a moment here now. Everybody awake at this juncture. Weren't there 10,000 Jews that went from Jerusalem to Babylon? Where were all the others? I assume they were bowing. Now, maybe they were on the other side of the plane and nobody saw them stand. But I assume that they were bowing. They may have said to themselves, we have families and we have children, and let's not be too critical of them because you don't know whether or not you would bow if your life were at stake or if your family were attacked and threatened. But uh, there they are. These three guys stand even when nobody else stands with them. I know that we look far too young for this, but Rebecca and I actually have two grandsons that are, have entered college this fall. We, uh, we don't fear that they'll be talked out of their faith. What we fear is that they will be mocked out of their faith. They will be mocked out of their faith. Uh, today they will be shamed because your God is an embarrassment. 
You mean you believe that Bible that says this, that, and the other thing? And we're living in an age when Christians are mocked into silence. They are paralyzed for fear of standing alone and saying, here we stand, I can do no other. And what we need to do is to recognize how important it is for us to be willing to stand alone when nobody else even stands with us. You'd be surprised at the number of Christians who even are embarrassed to give thanks at a meal. Because after all, we don't want to be thought of right-wingers. You know, you bow to pray, and if you're in the United States, oh, one of those right-wingers, he probably voted for Trump, you know. <laughs> and so what, what you want to do is you want to hide your light under a bushel at a time of darkness when our lights should gladly and joyfully shine for Jesus, we are often paralyzed by fear. And what we have to do is to be willing to say, we stand. After all, Jesus said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. So go on believing, go on trusting, and stand alone. I, I appreciated that amen. <laughs> I was telling the folks this morning that in Canada it's still legal in your churches at least to say amen. Number five, they feared God. They feared God more than they did the flames. They feared God more than they did the furnace. I told you that throughout church history, many people have been burned. In uh, June of this year, I led a tour to the sites of the Reformation in England and Scotland. I frequently have led tours to the sites of the Reformation on the continent, the German Reformation, but this was somewhat new, though we had done it before. And when in Oxford, we came to the big three. Now, you must understand that when, oh, the, the history, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. But anyway, Bloody Mary is ruling. She kills about 280 Protestants. But the big three were burned in Oxford. Ridley, who was the Bishop of London, Latimer, the preacher, and Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And today you can actually go to the place where the fire was. That's the amazing thing. They can say, here was the fire. When Ridley and Latimer burned, Bloody Mary wanted Cranmer to watch. She wanted him to see what it's like to be burned. Latimer burned quite quickly. Ridley, the flames came to his legs. But the, but the fire was not strong enough to kill him. He pled, please bring the fire, please, please, please. It was a horrible death. And uh, Latimer, under excuse me, Cranmer, under pressure, denied the faith. He signed about six documents saying, I deny the Protestant faith. I now bring myself under the rule of the Catholic Church, Pope, etc., etc. And Bloody Mary said, This is a wonderful victory because Cranmer had been appointed by Henry VIII to be the, one of the first archbishops of Canterbury. Bloody Mary had a victory. But you know, she said, Even though you've denied the faith, I'm going to burn you anyway. And, and let me tell you why. Oh, this is so intriguing. 
She said that because it was Cranmer who negotiated the divorce between Bloody Mary's mother, namely Catherine of Aragon, and Henry VIII. And so she had a thing with him, and she said, I'm going to burn you anyway. So we were in St. Mary's Church in Oxford where Cranmer was brought to give his last speech. And of course, it was filled with jubilant Catholics because this was their great victory. Cranmer had denied the faith. And uh, today in Oxford, in the St. Mary's Church, you see that there is a pillar with part of it chiseled out. And that actually was chiseled out so that the platform could be there for Cranmer's last speech saying that he denied the faith, his recantation. And, and it's there today. It's called the Cranmer Pillar. So I want you to see the church full of people, jubilant Catholics, very disappointed and disheartened Protestants, and Cranmer, he's an old man. He dies eight months after his two friends died. He gives his last speech. And in the speech, he says, I know I denied the faith, but I did it because of fear, because I saw my friends being burned. I recanted, but I now recant my recantation. And I die as a Protestant with my faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then he said these words, let this hand, let this hand that recanted be the first one to burn. He was led from the church to the place of burning that you can see today. People going with him, still Catholics telling him, deny the faith, deny the faith, recant. He said, I recant my recantation. And those who saw him burn said that he put this hand in the fire and it was in the fire until it was like a cinder, black. And he kept saying, this hand, this hand. And he died a martyr. So actually, he is a martyr to the Christian faith. And you know, throughout history, because of my love of history, I'm thinking of John Hus, who was taken to the stake in the <coughs> Council of Constance. And John Hus is walking along of the authorities, ridiculed him. They said, we commit your soul to the devil. And John Hus said, I commit my soul into the hands of the living God. He died there, too, in the fire in Constance with great victory. And by the way, I'm throwing this in. No extra cost for your coming tonight. <laughs> Do you know what Huss said before he died? He said, you can cook this goose because in the Swiss, excuse me, in the Czech language, Huss is goose. He used to sign his name, Goose. He said, you can cook this goose and we still use the expression today, don't we? We say they cooked his goose. It goes back to 500 years to the time of John Huss. He said, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years, a swan will arise, and him you will not silence. 102 years later, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg and believed that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. You can cook this goose, but in a hundred years, a swan will arise. And that's why if you've ever been in the room where Luther died, there's a swan on the table. Of course, not a living one, but a plastic <laughs> swan symbolizing him. But anyway, these men, God bless them, they feared God 
houses. They got beaten up for their faithfulness, but they said they're our kind of freedom of religion is not going to keep us from faithfulness. And the great state of Tennessee, the great dominion of America, there's a woman that Thank you. 
him you are killed with the sword it says he uses the sword to kill people which is very interesting historically as it relates to Islam be that as it may the point is it says there that finally the state has become God for everybody except the elect that do not worship the beast and it says catch this it says and it was given him power over the saints to kill them so these saints who don't bow, they are killed. Losers, chapter 13. Come with me to chapter 15 of Revelation. And I beheld as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Did I quote that too quickly? Did you catch it? And I saw them who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image. And they stand victoriously on the sea of they did not win in this life, but they won in the life to come. And time is short, and eternity is long. That's why we should be investing our lives, not in this life, but using it to glorify God and to exalt his name with the life to come in our minds and our motivations. Amen. Now you're getting better. <laughs> what is it that they need? America needs, Canada needs. There is a story about a man who had a dream. In the dream, he was carrying a cross that was so heavy. I mean, it was really, really a heavy cross. And he was weary. And he noticed a woodsman over there in the forest. And so he said, hey, can you cut off part of my cross? So the woodsman cut off part of the man's cross. And now he was able to carry it more easily. He went on his way and thinking, wow, that was a good decision. My cross is now much lighter. But as he walked along, he came to a chasm between two mountains. And he wasn't able to jump the chasm. And he wanted to put his cross down to use it as a bridge, but it was short, just the amount that had been cut off. When he woke up, he really was thankful that it was only a dream. And what he learned was the heavier our cross, the stronger our witness. If you want to make progress in the Christian life, what you do is you carry a cross no matter how heavy it gets because you need to to take the next step in your walk with God. And what does Kelowna need? Christians who gladly carry crosses, even when they become heavy. Now, you can't carry the cross unless, first of all, you receive the work of the cross. There is a story about a little boy who uh, was lost in a town, and he couldn't remember his address, and he was talking to a policeman. And the policeman's trying to help this little boy figure out where he lives. 
The little boy doesn't have his address, didn't remember it. And then the little boy says, you know, there's a big church. And I know we live close to this church. And the policeman asked him what kind of a church and so forth. And he said, it's, the, it's a church with a big cross. And, and then the policeman knew which church that was. And the little boy said, take me to the cross. And I'll find my way home. What Kelowna needs is loving, firm witnesses who are not ashamed of the gospel carrying heavy crosses and telling other people that if you come to the cross where Jesus died and was raised again and purchased our salvation, that cross will lead you all the way home. Our Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you'll give us the courage and the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pray today, Father, for university students. We pray for those who are in our society, Christians who are silent because they don't want to be identified with some narrow-minded gospel church or preaching. We ask today that you will make us strong witnesses, freedom or no freedom, to be faithful to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.